how remote learning has changed in education and a glimpse into its future. Next on Remote Space. Hello? Uh, yeah, right. I'm sending that over in an hour. The meeting today? Another one? Hold on one sec. Enough! (laughs) Working from home not as much fun as you imagined? Remote Space explores the tools and philosophies we use as we work more remotely. We'll talk to experts who have mastered remote work, those studying the shift in how we work, and those learning on the run. Here's your host, Doug Thomas. Maria Menderborough has a lifelong passion for education. Her day job is digging into the engineering that makes technology and AI work. But over the years, Maria has dedicated time and effort to teach, including with TEALS, a program connecting classroom teachers with tech industry volunteers to create sustainable computer science classes. For Maria, those connections have often been remote. Maria, in your in your work over the years, even before this bizarre year of 2020, what did you see as the advantages of remote learning? The advantages to me are that you can reach more students and that you can add diversity to who's giving instruction. Just because when I was teaching with the TEALS program, What TEALS does is it pairs people that work full-time in the technology industry with high schools that are trying to launch their computer science programs. And the teacher learns alongside of the students what computer science is as a discipline, and then also the teacher learns how to teach it. This program launched in Seattle, and then it grew to other cities where there was a lot of people that worked in tech that could volunteer in local schools. But once they were able to go remote, Then I was volunteering for a school that was in Leavenworth, Washington, which is a fairly small town. It's two hours away from Seattle. The primary industries are uh, tourism and agriculture, both. And there's just not a lot of people that work full time in tech that live in the area. So they didn't have volunteers until the program went remote. So on the diversity of instruction, you can put more people that have subject matter expertise and that have really got something valuable to add to a classroom in front of students. Uh, I also used to volunteer for years uh, at a children's hospital when I was in graduate school. So the graduate school and my postdoc, so I did it for six years. And there was a children's hospital within walking distance of my office. So I spent several afternoons a week there working on schoolwork with children that were in, for various reasons, inpatient in the hospital. And what you're normally seeing with kids is that as soon as there's a reason why they can't sit in a room of 30 other students, uh, they get dropped out of their normal education routine. And then when I was teaching remotely, I had uh, several students that for different family challenges and for different health reasons had to miss class, but they could still show up online. So since we were teaching remotely anyway, it didn't matter that they weren't sitting in their physical classroom and we were still able to keep them involved in the learning process and and interacting with other students without having to do it in person. Yeah. So let's get right into this whole difference between the times you're able to walk 
to the place and talk with them and work with them versus remote. I mean, reading the room is a really important thing in, in teaching or in, in, as we found out with management and just uh, and lead, leadership. How is it that you read the students, you read the room when you're teaching remotely? Uh, well, it is a lot harder. There's there's no way to get around that to get to know the students and to understand where they're at in terms of their emotions is much more challenging. When you're doing instruction virtually, there's tons and tons of really rich data that comes in about engagement. So especially as these platforms have gotten better, you can tell what are, how often are they clicking? What are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? And you can also tell a level of achievement fairly quickly. Like is, is, if it's happening virtually, you get this whole data stream coming at you. Uh, that's really rich about whether they're engaging with their learning and, and how much they're understanding. However, it's really hard to tell what mood they're in. <laughs> it's really hard to tell, are they smiling? Or are they frowning? Are they bad at their friend sitting next to them? And it's much harder to get to know them because when you're in person in any sort of teaching, half of what your relationship is with the students happens in the dead time. So when they're changing classes or when they first get there in the morning, when, you know, you've given them a five minute break and they're talking to their friends and they happen to let you in on the conversation, you start to understand them as humans so, so much better. And that's the part that's really hard to replace virtually. Yeah. I mean, that's been a common theme with, uh, with, you know, at work versus working online. And of course I'm someone who I always felt like I got half of my good ideas from hallway conversations. So uh, I, it's a struggle we're all going through, I know. And it's definitely possible, though. It just takes a lot more work. So when I was teaching for Teals and I was meeting with the students, I would make a point to try and get to every single student and keep track of whether or not I was talking to them individually And then I was also scheduling different interactions that were just casual. So I have to plan to have the same type of conversations that were happening naturally when I was in person. And because you're already so crunched during the school day for what you're trying to cover from a learning perspective, it takes work. It takes a, a lot of work and a lot of creativity for it to be authentic. Right. And I, I know that's one struggle that a lot of people have that what would be a hallway conversation or I stop by your office and I just happen to see and I poke your head in, uh, poke my head in and say hi, that those have to be planned now. And I know that folks at work have a tr- struggle with thinking, oh, I have to plan this type of stuff that wasn't planned before. Do younger students, do they understand that better? I mean, do they do they get that more than uh, maybe an older generation? I think that it, it is more natural for them to talk through a screen. Also, too, I would say, because I'm doing a lot of work right now for a group called Latina Techies that we founded to try and reach more women in the technology industry that are either trying to launch a career in technology or that are trying to grow a career in technology. Uh, and we put out a lot of different learning events. And People are so much more comfortable now than they were before the pandemic. So the muscle is definitely developing for the generation that's not the under 18 set. 
But for those that are under 18, because they grew up with social media and social media has become a really, really big deal, especially with like your middle school and your high school set of the way that they interact with each other. And in some ways, if you remember when you were in middle school and high school, it's often difficult to go up and talk to that boy that you really like or to put yourself out there with the cool kids or something. But online, that interaction doesn't have a lot of risk. So kids have been really taking towards these social media, for better or for worse, ways of interacting with each other. And then now during the pandemic, our adult learners that I'm seeing come in through Latina techies, some of them that that hadn't been very exposed now know all about TikTok. (laughs) There's still massive explosions in networking through LinkedIn. And how do people approach each other and start to build connections, ask for mentorship, ask for an informational interview? I'm seeing so much of that happening through LinkedIn, whereas before I was seeing it happen through uh, meetups that were sponsored by a group that happened in a physical location. Which is, again, one of those silver linings that as work has changed that we accelerate, we go, we start something new. And then when whatever the normal is comes back, we'll be able to handle all this stuff and and probably even make it better. I know you're not doing a lot with students right now, but from the time that you were remote to the months where they were also remote, what were some of the difficulties or or was it the same? How, How did it feel different when both of you were remote? Well, one of the biggest difference or difficulties, I should say, is that it's challenging to keep it interesting when I can't be my animated self because I can be really enthusiastic. I, if you see me right now, I'm talking with my hands and I have... Right there with you, right there with you. <laughs> I walk up and down the room, you know, I mean, and, and I'm a very animated person and it, they still see that to an extent because they're seeing my face on a remote teaching session, but I'm a little fox in the corner as opposed to standing right behind them where they can't ignore me. So <laughs> there's part of my natural enthusiasm because I, I love teaching. That's why I got into education and eventually education technology was because I really love teaching and I, and I love the whole process of learning. So I get excited and it, and it, They don't see nearly as much of it. It was also more challenging to plan group activities because I found that it was still pretty easy for me to do what you would call like a traditional lecture. So I can talk for, I tried to keep it short because they don't pay attention for more than 10 or 15 minutes, but (laughs) 10 or 15 minutes of a lecture, give them an assignment and then go check in with them in breakout rooms it was much, much more challenging to get them to work together because when they start focusing on that screen, there's something that sort of shifts in that they're really zeroed in on their interactions with the machine and they're not really as, as focused on their interaction with the human next to them. So one to one, me to one student through a computer, that still went pretty well. But if I tried to get four students to work together and collaborate, that was more challenging and the tools were not as friendly for it as giving students, you know, a piece of poster board, a bunch of post-its and Sharpies. Uh, But now we're seeing these really, really big innovations with what's coming out with digital whiteboards and with pen and ink and students are learning how to use them and they're getting much faster with them. So I'm not 
saying that's going to be a problem forever because the innovation that's happened to make it more like you're with another person in a meeting room or slash a classroom with your, your whiteboard, your, your post-its, your poster boards and your Sharpies, we're getting there, but it's still not as rich as it, as I would have liked to see it in group settings. Right. We've seen a lot of these new tools come up in, in tools in, in Zoom and in Microsoft Teams and things like that. But to get people to start using them and then master them is kind of those next steps that, that need to happen. And sometimes we're moving so fast, it's like, eh, I'm going to not look at the new stuff right away. Um, so to get deeper into that would help. Yeah, but what's amazing is that the speed at which I've seen adult learners picking up these tools, because students, there's there's always a hump with getting any student that hasn't been exposed to technology for learning, because they often will use tech for their social lives or for gaming, but tech for learning, there's a, there's a hump they have to get over to be able to really use it as a learning tool. And, and students under 18 tend to pick this up pretty quick. Adults, not so much. And so the speed at which teachers are learning right now has been really impressive in terms of what are they even trying to do with technology? How many different tools are they willing to pull up during a teaching session? And then when they're at home at night, are they just spending all their time prepping, trying to figure out how to learn the tool? Or are they trying to think about what am I teaching tomorrow? The same thing has happened with adult learners, because in Latina Techies, we are doing most of our learning events virtually right now. And we're not having to deal with some of the issues that we did before when we had tried to do anything virtual, in that everyone knows how to click on a Teams link and join a meeting. They know how to unmute themselves and mute themselves. They know how to share their screens. And they can do that in Teams. They can do it in Zoom. They can do it in any other online meeting tool that's used now. They also, too, can troubleshoot. So if their microphone's not working or their, their video is not working, they're learning how to jump into the device settings and fix that. And those are things that used to be major barriers to getting off the ground with learning that you're seeing learners at all ends of the age spectrum being able to do now. Yeah, and I, I see that every day. My my wife, we're in adjoining bedrooms, which we take as offices now, is a SLP in the public school district. So I've seen that growth of exactly, and it's that trade-off of do I learn at night or am I working on what I need to do tomorrow or am I trying to take a break that this this massive amount of work and weight that we've put on teachers. So to to, to see them make I mean, I always compliment when I see when she talks and I hear about things that I remember a couple months ago were a struggle. There's probably new struggles, but those old things do get mastered over time, which uh, will need to happen, especially as many school districts are looking to do some sort of hybrid system, which sounds even worse than being all online or all in the classroom. (laughs) Hybrid is super challenging. However, if we can master it, I love hybrid models because our students are not the same. They don't have the same preferences. What works well for one doesn't work for all. And then a lot of them have challenges. They have, again, going back to, I used to volunteer at a children's hospital. Kids deal with a lot of really serious illnesses and kids that have chronic illness 
will often test after five years of being in and out of hospitals and having to be home because of compromised immune systems or anything else they're dealing with. They'll test as if they had learning disabilities and they don't. And it's just because they're missing so much school. And they also get very isolated from friends and their, you know, their, their friends move on. They keep in touch for a month or two. And then three months later, their social network is broken. So students get very isolated. And so having all these ways that we can keep more kids participating in an education system, even though it's challenging and hybrid right now is hard, it's a barrier I really, really hope we get over. Kids moving in the middle of the square is such a big hit to their learning. No matter what direction, if they go to a school where the learning is more challenging, if they go to a school where the learning is lower than the level they were being taught at before, no matter what, it's different. And when a kid moves mid-school year, which happens all the time in this country, you see major disruptions into their progress. One of the things that I, I heard years ago, I think when my first daughter was in I want to say first or second grade, I was sitting next to the principal at a concert and, you know, they were moving, you know, different classes in and out, you know, and I, I complimented that the music teacher who I thought was wonderful did really well on the transitions of just to get the kids to in, you know, in and out. And the principal kind of said to me, transitions, teachings all about transitions. It's the most important thing. And I'd never heard that before. And it's, it, I guess it's stuck with me now for 20 years. So, that's great to hear about the hybrid because I, I, my wife having a, a niece that teaches public school, to hear that encouragement helps me. So thank, thank you for that. I know accessibility has been something that you've been looking into because, again, as you said, if you make it accessible for people that didn't have that access, it helps making it accessible for everyone. Yes, universal design for learning is is basically the concept of if you design well from the early stages and you design intentionally for everyone, then the entire spectrum of achievement can go up. So rather than feeling like, okay, well, I developed this system and now I need to make it more challenging for the students that are, quote, gifted, or I need to modify it for the students that are struggling, think about how can I move the needle for everyone simultaneously and make the learning flexible enough? Because there's a lot of principles that have been very, very well researched about what types of instructional models work well across the achievement spectrum? So in universal design for learning, I'm seeing people really start to understand this more because one thing is to be able to provide options and for students to have choice. And when you're not using technology, that can be really challenging. I mean, a teacher can't give 25 different lectures, but a teacher can create, let's say a solid five options that students can choose to decide how they're gonna consume a certain amount of learning content. And they can also provide, let's say three options for how they're gonna demonstrate understanding of that. And that is way, way easier to do. Well, in my opinion, it is. <laughs> Other people may have a different opinion, but in my opinion, it's so much easier to do through a technology system than it is just trying to figure it out the old fashioned way because technology is built to be adaptive. And it's built to collect data and be responsive to the data it collects immediately. 
Right. And that goes back to what you were initially saying about working online, you lose some things in the connection, but you get this telemetry that when you can get it easily and understand it, it gives you some greater insight into how the students learn. Again, something we wouldn't have thought about years ago. Yeah. And then with, and with your struggling learners or with your students that have challenges to learning that are uh, physical. So your students that are hearing impaired or visually impaired, to just know is, am I doing this right? Because oftentimes students don't want to draw attention to themselves if their accommodations are not being met. So uh, I've, I've had a lot of students that have had visual impairment. And I, I remember one in particular that this was back when I was using an overhead and I was writing on, with markers. In one of my classes, I had a student that couldn't see it unless I wrote in black. And I would forget sometimes and I'd write ah. in or I'd write in blue and he couldn't see it. And it's just one of those things where he wouldn't remind me that he didn't see it. So these days, if I was writing in blue, his system could just turn it to black. You know, and there and there these accessibility features that are being built in. When we for Latina Techies do presentations right now, we subtitle. We, they're given in English. We subtitle them in Spanish. And there's natural language processing. It's not perfect, but if you know if you if you know some English and you really know Spanish and you heard it in English and you just kind of missed a couple words and you look at the Spanish translation, it dramatically increases the comprehension. And then these tools for students that are speaking multiple languages in the same classroom, I mean, the teacher can talk in English and students can be watching five subtitles in five different languages. That stuff's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. And that didn't exist before. Right. So you've got a PhD from Vanderbilt in educational policy analysis. You've got a master's from Stanford in curriculum and teacher education. But this passion for teaching, it goes much farther back, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, my mother was a uh, she was a teacher for students that had severe cognitive delays when I was young. And when I was three years old, uh, three, four and five and was in preschool then uh, I would go to preschool from 9 a.m. to 12 a.m. And then my mother would pick me up on her lunch break. And I was in her classroom for special needs students for the entire rest of the afternoon. And I would help mom. I was teacher's helper in, in mom's class with kids that had severe cognitive delays. And a lot of them were older than me, but I saw my role in that class as teacher's helper. And then when I was in uh, elementary and middle school, she became a mobility instructor for the blind and was teaching adults uh, that had become blind in later life, basic mobility. And the classes that the adults were in also included other life skills for them to be able to go back to being a productive adult without vision. So on all my school breaks, I was I was helping at the center that that she worked at and figuring out what I could do to be helpful in these different learning environments. Uh, and I would often be uh, loaned to the kids program because they had all kinds of really cool technology tools that they use to do assessments as well as stimulation activities with kids with low vision. And they had all these really old fashioned touch screens where the screen sits on top of the regular monitor. And then it's very you know limited of what it, could be used with because the compatibility with software was pretty low. But I used to think touch screens were the absolute coolest things in the world and I would help them test them out and I would help them. I mean, so many different data sets for them to see like, what's it look like when a student that's not visually impaired is using this. 
And then when I ended up doing research, uh, my very first big research project that I did was on how to build math tools for the iPad because the iPad was brand new. And we were really investigating how can these touch-based interfaces make it easier for students to do visual representations of mathematics and how do the visual representations help their comprehension and the iPad was the interface. So, you know, I've been playing with touch screens since I was eight. And then when I was 30 and doing my very first full-time job, it was, it was kind of the same thing. <laughs> Only I was more on the design and development side as opposed to just playing with it like a kid does. Yeah, but you're like a movie character. You have this perfect uh, arc of, of where you can see from learning from your mom into this technology, into this job, into these movements that you've been to. It's been great. And you had told me earlier, you're still helping your mom a bit like the rest of us are helping parents, correct? Yeah. So my mom has retired. Uh, she retired a few years ago and she substitute teaches. And when you have a substitute teacher that used to be full-time teaching students with disabilities, she is an incredibly popular substitute teacher. And she takes some really, really challenging classes. She has a, she has a class she regularly substitutes for that all of the students are autistic and, and blind. And they have done a lot of remote instruction. And, and mom is one of their favorite substitutes. But she had to really get over a hump with, can I teach remotely and I taught her how to use teams then she went and learned how to use Google Classroom for the school district that she's with and at first it all was very intimidating and it's I would still say it's not her favorite uh, but she's gotten so much better at it and she's willing to take these jobs that she wasn't before because the school system that she's in has some teachers that are remote all day. They have some teachers that are in person all day and they have some that are hybrid. And then they have some that are first period is online. Second period is in person because she is substituting all across a county. And in that county, you have all of those variations. A lot of this has been volunteer work or work you've done in the past. Your focus is a, is a little different right now at Microsoft. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So right now I'm a technical program manager for the Substrate team. And Substrate is the data and intelligence platform that has all of the user data from users that are interacting with Microsoft 365. And then a lot of Microsoft's AI tools are built on top of Substrate. So it's a huge, huge data platform. And my role is really different than it has been because being on a platform team is really different than being on a product team. And nearly all of my work in the past was product related. And then it's so much deeper from a technical standpoint in terms of what do I do on a daily basis? Because I've worked on very complex products before. This is the first time that my day job requires understanding engineering at a much deeper level. And knowing how does this system actually work? <laughs> and I have been super passionate about bringing more artificial intelligence into education and so many accessibility tools and so many tools that make classrooms exciting for the virtual environment are based on artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is all based on data. I'm really passionate about getting more involved with computer science education because I, I've taught with Teals already. I've also done a lot in my past jobs of math education. Math education and data science are really closely related, but I felt like I would hit a ceiling a lot. I was good at introducing students to 
the basic level of, you know, what's programming and what are algorithms and in data science, you know, what are the different tools that are available in a computer to make great data visualizations. But when it comes to where does this go as a career once you're past the very entry level, I didn't have the knowledge that I felt like I needed to build a foundation to get students to pass the entry level. Uh, And I really wanted to work on understanding that more because the deeper that you understand a subject, the better you are at going back and teaching the basics. Sure. I mean, it's like if education's an airplane, you're now figuring out um, how to build the engines and, and how all the other dynamics things work. That's that's incredible. It's been really exciting. It's definitely been a great challenge for me. I have never pushed myself this hard with my technical skills in something that I have no idea. <laughs> and maybe I should give myself a little bit more credit. I had some idea, but for example, when I took when I was in graduate school, I did a ton of advanced classes in statistics, but I did all the basic classes before I did the advanced ones. And it was a progression. And I, I got to a really high level in that. But I went through steps one, two and three. And this um, I skipped a whole bunch of steps. I mean, I went to I went to a coding boot camp and was hired to Microsoft through Leap, which is the, the diversity hiring program that helps recruit students from alternative methods of education, including a lot of boot camps. And then once I got here, I landed in an education team. So I relied heavily on my subject matter expertise that I brought to Microsoft. And I'm so, so grateful to the program that they're willing to help take a chance because I had a ton of things I could contribute to, even though I didn't major in computer science because my understanding of education is so deep. But then I realized that I had hit a bit of a wall in terms of my technical skills were not growing at nearly the rate that I wanted them to. And long-term, if, I, if I'm if i someone that didn't major in computer science and I want a long career at Microsoft, which I do, I had to invest in myself. And I had to really put the time that I didn't spend when I was an undergrad learning. I mean, you should see my list of vocabulary words because I'm constantly writing down words that I don't understand. You should see how long it is now. And the amount of time I spend looking up things after meetings and I record tons of meetings just so I can go back to them after I've looked everything up and try and understand what everybody was talking about. But I have to do that a lot less than I did six months ago. And I'm very, very hopeful that in a year I won't even need to look things up because I'll, you know, I'll be able to keep up with the conversations. Maria, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Maria Mendeburo. Uh, is a senior technical program manager at Microsoft. But if you've listened to this, it's this lifelong teaching and learning about education that really drives her. Maria, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear more stories and lessons learned from those working in the remote space.